Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math. Our guest today is Alex Burke, the author of Beautiful Symmetry. This fascinating book is like no other I've ever read. It is both an introduction to group theory, an invitation to participate in discovery, and an adult coloring book. It's different and intriguing. If you have children, you can introduce them to an advanced mathematical concept by having them participate in some of the early coloring exercises. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jan. It's great to be here. Thank you. What motivated you to write this book? I'm sorry if this uh, comes off long-winded, but when I started this project, I was taking a step back from industry to re-explore my own interests in math and computer science and art, and I was researching the intersections of art and technology and programming some art myself, and I wanted to create art in a way that I could show others what I found so beautiful and special about math. And by math, I mean the type of math that can show us um, these alternative realities or help you think about and get lost in paradoxes and infinity. And I was so lucky to be exposed to these kinds of concepts and art as a kid, particularly through the artist M.C. Escher's artwork and wallpaper patterns. Um, And at the same time, I knew how fortunate I was to be able to take this time to explore my interests in this way um, because I could return to, you know, a tech job or, uh, you know, being a software engineer later, which I did. Um, But I had this privilege partly because of my good fortune in finding my love for math early on. Um, And, you know, I could go on and on about how that led to majoring in math and computer science in college and lucky me that what I love to explore um, led this way to a receptive job market. And I'm just so lucky for these opportunities and exposure to math resources that got me here. So this project is largely an attempt to pay forward um, this this good fortune by creating an accessible math resource uh, for a math audience. Well, you know, this book is a unique concept. What audience do you have in mind when you wrote this book? Everyone. This project had broad inspirations from the start. Everyone, meaning children, adults, people who love math and puzzles but don't care about coloring, or people who think coloring is fun but don't think they like math or understand it. It can be for parents and their children to work with together, or teachers who just want to have an extra resource around in their classroom for students. Sounds good. What coloring implements did you advise that a reader have available? A few shapes can be colored with crayons. That's sort of early in the book. But the more complex shapes require much more delicate coloring instruments. Yeah, I mean, you should use whatever you like. So serious coloring enthusiasts will have special pens and pencils with fine tips and multiple colors. And they're great, but personally, I'm not a coloring enthusiast. I just use a regular pen I have lying around when I color. It's also fine to color with big markers and color outside the lines if you need to, because you can still complete the coloring challenges in this way conceptually while making a mess outside the line. So it's really up to you. Um, Okay. 
You know, unquestionably, it is possible to learn about math through your suggestions about coloring. And children could color some of the larger and simpler shapes and learn some math in the process. And I think that was one of your goals. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, the title of your book is Beautiful Symmetry. What are some of the symmetries that we see in nature? Oh, I'm sure people see them all around them. So we have rotational symmetries, which we might see in the petals and a flower or, say, the legs in a starfish. And then the book is also about mirror reflections, and we know about reflections in water. Um, and there's also symmetries in our bodies and uh, the bodies of almost any animal in terms of bilateral symmetry of our faces or, say, our, how our hands um, are mirror images of each other. And there are a lot of examples of when you can combine rotational and mirror symmetries. For example, a favorite is snowflakes. Um, there are also glide reflections, which we can see in footsteps. And then there are repeating patterns, so translations in the stripes on a snake or uh, the arrangement of scales on a snake or any other reptile or fish or, say, a bee's honeycomb. That's another example of where you might see repeating patterns and translation. You know, you start with some simple symmetries, flips, quarter turns, and half turns. What are some of the basic shapes that exhibit these? Um... Well, the basic shapes that the book works with are the regular polygons, such as rectangles and squares and triangles and hexagons. Those are just the most basic shapes, uh, but we can also see these same symmetries in uh, more fun shapes, too. Um, okay, one of the things that I notice is that your book is filled with a lot of fun shapes, and I, I think I mentioned this to you in one of our previous exchanges via email. It struck me that the book would absolutely be beautiful if it were augmented by uh, augmented by a computer program, which would enable a reader to express some, uh, see some of these symmetries. Because I know I tried a few of the earlier symmetries, and I could color them okay. But um, I'm pretty old, and when I got to the bigger ones, the more complicated ones. I just kept reading rather than coloring. Yeah, well, actually, there is a digital version of a book that brings the entire book to life in these interactive animations. So it, it's great if your listeners want to buy the book, but they really don't have to. They can go to beautifulsymmetry.onl. That's the website where it's all the same content that the book has, but it brings all of the illustrations, which are illustrating the symmetries that the book is about, to life in these interactive animations. So if it's hard to see these symmetries on a static piece of paper, they animate in front of you. So if it's hard to see that a, an infinitely repeating pattern has quarter turns, here are the quarter turns moving that pattern in front of you. I am absolutely so glad to see that you did this. Um, I love the book, and I hope uh, that listeners will buy the book. But it's nice to be able to augment it with this particular, uh, with having a website like that. And at the end of the uh, interview, um, when I ask uh, how readers can get in touch with you, I'd like you to repeat that again. Um, so Absolutely. That, okay, terrific. You know, after the flips, quarter turns, and half turns, you moved on to rotational symmetries. A feature of your book is a puzzle aspect where you show an uncolored shape and ask the reader whether it exhibits a particular type of symmetry and to color it in such a way to bring out that symmetry. I really like that idea. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's that's what this book is about. It's all about engaging with the audience through these uh, interactions. And that main interaction you're talking about are what we call coloring challenges. And there's, they're the puzzles of a book. Uh, we're talking about symmetries. And now it's your job as a reader to use color to manipulate those symmetries to find subgroups or, you know, why subgroups might be impossible or to transform um, an illustration that represents one group into um, representing another group by uh, removing some of the symmetries and keeping others. And some of these puzzles get kind of tough at the end, too. Oh, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. That... But there are solutions online. Don't worry. Oh, okay. Well, you know, we've been talking about symmetry in sort of an informal sense. What exactly is a symmetry in the sense you use it? What's a transformation that preserves symmetry? Sure. So in my book, I use symmetry to mean a transformation, like a reflection or a rotation that leaves whatever object it acted upon unchanged. So this book uses illustrations to show these symmetries. For example, a simple illustration of a square and a symmetry of that square is a 90 degree turn or a quarter turn, as I call it in the book. And we can see that by turning a square by a quarter turn and we see the same square. So we can call the quarter turn a symmetry of the square because each corner of the square lands on an identical corner and the square is left visually unchanged. Uh, this transformation left it unchanged. Um, so the square and these other illustrations in the book are just tools to help us see and understand and play with symmetries, where the symmetries are the ways that we can transform these illustrations while leaving them visually unchanged. So these illustrations may um, have many symmetries, and these symmetries form groups. And this more abstract concept of symmetry is really what the book is trying to show its audience. And the way of showing its audience is through illustration and interacting with these illustrations by, say, coloring. You know, you label certain collections as C groups, and I think these are the ones that mathematicians call cyclic groups. What characterizes these groups? Uh, so these groups are really simple, and that's why we start off with them. They have just one generator, and that's what characterizes them, the fact that they have just one generator. And in the book, we illustrate cyclic groups with designs that have rotational symmetries. See, with just one rotation as a generator, we can generate many more rotations. For example, uh, combining a quarter turn with another quarter turn creates a half turn. So remember how we said a square has a quarter turn as a symmetry? We could turn a square by a quarter turn and then do that again. And now the square has turned by a half turn and all the corners and lines of the square still landed on identical corners and lines, and the square is left visually unchanged. So then we could say a half turn is also a symmetry of the square, and it was generated by a quarter turn. So then turn by a quarter again, and now the square is visually unchanged, but we made a three-quarters turn. Uh, so a three-quarters turn is a symmetry of the square as well. And then turn by a quarter again, and we land back where we started. The square turned all the way around, and this is the same as a zero turn or an identity element. And this is just a quick example of how with illustration we can see one symmetry act as a generator to generate an entire cyclic group. And so the group does um, goes through the same exercise with other cyclic groups and illustrations that are a bit more exciting than simple squares too. Um, you just, uh, in your previous discussion, um, you talked about a generator of a group. 
And mm-hmm. for instance, in uh, in describing the groups of rotations of a square, and there are only there are only four of them: a quarter turn, a half turn, three quarter turn, and zero turn or full turn. Um, I gather that a quarter turn is a generator because if you keep making quarter turns, you get all the possible four rotations that constitute this group. But what about a half turn? Is a half turn a generator? A half turn wouldn't be a generator for the group of the rotations of a square. What about a three-quarter turn? A three-quarter turn would be, yeah. And one of the fun things that we do in the book is try to find what the generators of a group can be. So while, uh, while if we're considering the group of rotations of a square, a half turn can't be a generator for that group, but both a quarter turn and a three quarters turn, um, either one could be. Um, well, that brings up, you know, that brings up a really obvious question. I, and it's the type of thing that mathematicians talk about, because this is what mathematics, you know, what a lot of mathematics is. Can you describe which rotations are generators for cyclic groups? Sure. So um, I just want to, I want to have a, a point of uh, clarity here. Lovely. Uh, so I, I just want to clarify that cyclic groups come in all forms. And the book is just talks about finite cyclic groups and represents them as groups of rotations and illustrates them with shapes that have rotational symmetry. But rotations and cyclic groups don't necessarily go together. For example, you could think about uh, the integers and addition, and that's that creates an infinite group and, um, you know, very different than our groups of rotations. Uh, but for our groups of rotations that we talk about in the book, the smallest rotation possible is always a generator for the other possible rotations. But then the book also gets the reader to find the other ones as well. And that's fun. Um, I, this is one of the few things I remember from group theory, but I'm guessing that it's the ones that are relatively primed to the number of elements in the group. Yeah, yeah. It was just That's a one way to guess. describe it. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, I didn't get much further into group theory, but that um, there were some nice, uh, for the reader who is interested in exploring this, groups are perhaps the simplest mathematical structure um, and it's, uh, well, it, it, or at least the simplest algebraic structure. And it's amazing how many different types of groups there are. And Alex's book is a wonderful introduction to some very important types of groups. Now, what are subgroups and how can coloring be used to display them? Sure. So when we say that a group has a subgroup, we mean that a subset of its elements also form a group. And we've been talking about squares a lot, so let's just continue with this. Uh, We talked about how a square can be colored in a way to reduce its symmetries from a quarter turn, half turn, three-quarters turn, and full turn to just a half turn and a full turn. Um, Or or let me describe how we would do this. So imagine, like, uh, taking a square and then dividing it into quadrants and coloring one corner uh, and then only coloring the opposite corner, the opposite quadrant uh, diagonally across. So now we can't rotate the square anymore by a quarter turn and leave it unchanged because then a colored quadrant would land on an uncolored quadrant. So we can't do that. That's uh, The quarter turn is no longer a symmetry of our colored square. But we could turn it instead by half turn. 
and then the colored quadrant would land on the opposite colored quadrant, and that opposite colored quadrant would turn around to land on the other colored quadrant. And so in this way, a half turn is still a symmetry of this, this colored square, or our group of rotations of the colored square. So in this way, we've shown how the group of symmetries of half turn and full turn is a subgroup of the original uh, symmetries of a quarter turn, a half turn, a three quarters turn, and a full turn. Um, when I first saw this, I thought, you know, it occurred to me that if you had the square, you could color two parallel sides red and two parallel sides blue. And yeah. uh, so there are all sorts of, you know, all sorts of intriguing ways to do this. Now, after you discuss reflection, after you discuss rotations, the next thing you get into is reflections. And what are reflections and what symmetries do they induce? Sure. So we've been talking about regular polygons like squares and talking about their rotational symmetries. But we also know they have mirror reflections as symmetries. So we could imagine this by drawing lines or axes through their centers and divide the shape in half so that we could imagine flipping each half across the line to land on its identical half. Uh, leaving the shape visually unchanged. So in this way, we can say these mirror reflections are symmetries of our shapes as well. Um, yeah, that's. I guess that's what's meant when human. We say human beings have bilateral symmetry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, I, I just love the idea how color helps illustrate how transformations combine. And is it possible to describe something simple so that listeners can understand that idea as well? Um, how to combine symmetries? Is, is uh, that what? How, how you use color to illustrate how transformations combine. Maybe hmm. this is a little, maybe this is a little complicated. And so, uh, we'll I feel like it. Yeah. I would want to like show. That's what I would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's one of the things is that it would be wonderful if this were a video, uh, you know, a video podcast but I haven't got the facilities and then we're getting into Ted talks and things like that. So, <laughs> and I'm yeah. not up at that level. <laughs> you know what your readers, uh, your listeners could do is they could go to beautiful the online version of this book and start flipping through it as they listen. Um, that's an excellent idea. And I wish we'd actually thought of that at the top of the, <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the advantages of having a podcast. Somebody can listen to it and then crank it back to the start and say, I'm going to do this. That's a wonderful idea. Thank you for suggesting that. Thank you. Okay. Well, it was your idea. Um, <laughs> what is non-commutativity? What is a simple example of two transformations that are not commutative? Okay. So the word commutative is synonymous with abelian. And basically, commutativity is when the order in which how we combine things are combined doesn't matter. So a simple example is with integers and addition. So one plus two is the same as two plus one. And the same is true for multiplication. One times two is the same as two times one. However, this is not the case with subtraction or division where we see non-commutativity. One minus two is not the same as two minus one. So in this book, instead of combining integers, we're combining symmetries such as rotations and reflections. And any combination of rotations commutes, and this is easy for us to see. For example, when I rotate a hexagon, say, by a half turn and then rotate it by uh, another half turn or, say, a six turn instead, 
versus first turning it by a six turn and then a half turn, it doesn't matter. We end up with the same result. We've turned it by the same amount. Um, so we can see that the groups of rotational symmetries are commutative. And actually any cyclic group, remember cyclic groups are the groups that can be generated by just one generator. Uh, any cyclic group is commutative. But this breaks down when we add more generators into the mix. So for example, consider the group of symmetries of a square that contains both its mirror reflections as well as its rotations. This group of reflections and rotations of a square is not commutative. The order in which we combine reflections and rotations does matter. And we can see this uh, by seeing that if we rotate a square by a quarter turn and then reflect it across a vertical mirror line, this has a different result than first reflecting it across that vertical mirror line and then rotating it by a quarter turn. And in this book, we use color to show and understand that. And you know, I so hope that somebody who's listening to this goes to the appropriate thing in, yeah. on, <laughs> and sees it because it, it would just be just be wonderful to augment the uh, uh, the podcast by doing that. Um, the next step up from uh, uh, from the cyclic groups are the dihedral groups. What are the dihedral groups? Sure. So in this book, we show the dihedral groups as the symmetries of a regular polygon, meaning the group of rotation and mirror reflections of our shapes. In this book, sometimes we use the same shapes to show both dihedral groups and cyclic groups because then we get to play with color and destroy some of the symmetries of the dihedral groups and show how they have cyclic groups as subgroups. And this is where things get fun. For example, we can show how a square, um, or we use a square to show the dihedral group that we call D4, which is the mirror reflections and symmetries of a square. Um, but we can find color, different ways to color the square to remove its mirror reflection symmetries and retain just rotational symmetries. Those are part of the coloring challenges, I assume. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. I notice you say that groups contain the symmetries, not the shapes that demonstrate the symmetries. What is the difference, if there is one, between a symmetry and a transformation that preserves the symmetry? We sort of touched on this a little earlier. Right. So this is where we need to get careful in how we're explaining things. And I've probably been a little sloppy here so far. So the book is about groups of symmetries and the symmetries are the transformations and the shapes and the ways that we color them are just used as tools to see and play with the groups of symmetries. So we refer to a symmetry in the book as a transformation that can leave a shape visually unchanged or a pattern visually unchanged. Yeah, that's good. Um, how do di dihedral and cyclic groups differ with respect to symmetry? So with respect to the cyclic and dihedral groups, the book looks at with shapes. The cyclic groups have just rotations as symmetries, while the dihedral groups have both rotations and mirror reflections as symmetries. So the dihedral groups have more generators. Uh -huh. uh, so then we get to see how by playing with color, that cyclic groups are even subgroups of dihedral groups. Um, yes, and I would imagine that the reflections also constitute subgroups of dihedral groups. Yes, it's true. Yeah, just a wild guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, and one of the things that I think that your readers will start to realize as they go through the coloring of the various different shapes to uh, to use subgroup um, to in which you 
use a certain type of coloring challenge to illustrate a subgroup, they might form the following conjecture, that the number of elements in a subgroup is a factor of the number of elements in a group. Is that actually true? Yes, and I, I hope they figure that out. This is also said in Lagrange's theorem, and I really hope they get to see this when they're coloring through shapes in the book. Um, but I, I do try to limit how much math jargon is used in the book. So um, I don't say Lagrange's theorem or, you know, other conjectures uh, explicitly. Um, I think that's a good idea because one of the things that sort of, it sometimes turns people on, but it also turns them off is when you start using jargon. Yeah. Um, and I'm never really sure. It was one of the things that appealed to me, but that probably, uh, uh, that's probably just quirky. Um, what happens when we do a symmetry-preserving transformation in reverse? Well, then we get to talk about inverses, which is what we do in the book. Um, what exactly is an inverse um, in the group sense, and how does, it, uh, how does it correspond to a reverse transformation? Um, so an inverse is basically the, you could consider it like the opposite of a transformation, something where if you, it, uh, if you combine an inverse, um, a symmetry with its inverse, then you're going to get back to the, what we call the identity element, which is the same as doing nothing at all. That's like adding zero or adding zero to a number or multiplying yeah. it by one. These are inverses all, I mean, sorry, these are identities as well. Yeah, and so like one of the really easy inverses that we look at in the book is um, a reflection is always uh, an inverse of itself. You could just reflect again and end up back where you start, or say you could turn um, the opposite direction and then you're back where you started. But that would be the same as you know if you're looking at the rotations of a square, you know the, the quarter turn rotation. Its inverse is the three quarters turn rotation because then that brings you back to the zero spot. Um, we're next going to get to a little jargon, which I had never seen before. What is an orbifold? I hope I've pronounced it correctly. And how do you use it in your book? Sure. So if we're talking about jargon, um, well, for what orbifolds are more generally, we can think of an orbifold as a quotient of a surface divided by a symmetry group. Uh, so imagine taking a pattern like the infinitely repeating wallpaper patterns in the book and folding it up along its symmetries until we come to the smallest piece that can no longer be folded. This piece is the orbifold, fold, and the symmetries of the original pattern are then features of this piece and can be interpreted as instructions for how to unfold it to get to our pattern again. And John Conway does a great job explaining orbifolds and what and how they can be used to understand our symmetry groups in, the, uh, in his paper. Uh, the orbifold notation for two-dimensional groups. But as for how the concept of orbifolds is used in the book, um, we don't really use the concept so much other than to name things. Uh, so mathematicians, we all know, aren't great at naming things, uh, even though naming is really important and helpful because it can uh, refer to things. If we can refer to things by their names, we can be clear as to what we're talking about. So there are many naming schemes for the freeze and wallpaper group patterns. Uh, and all of them are a bit confusing. The naming scheme I chose for the book is orbifold notation that uses this concept of orbifolds. And it was, this notation was popularized by John Conway. And actually in the beginning, I wasn't doing this in my earlier drafts. 
uh, at first I was using what is the more common notation called IUC notation. But luckily, this really nice artist and mathematician named Edmund Harris made the recommendation that I change the book to use orbifold notation as it can be a bit more intuitive. And I'm so glad that he did set me straight. So in short, the book uses orbifold notation to name the freeze and wallpaper pattern groups, which are the groups that it covers after the section on cyclic and dihedral groups. And what's really nice about these orbifold names is that even though they might start off looking cryptic, once you understand the naming scheme, the names that then describe the symmetries of their groups or the symmetries that you can see in the patterns uh, that they're naming. Um, we've discussed freeze groups, and I'm not sure that listeners can tell that they that it is freeze, F-R-I-E-Z-E, rather than freeze, F-R-E-E-Z-E. So I think we ought to be clear that freeze here is F-R-I-E-Z-E. And so what is a freeze group and how does it relate to the concept of a freeze in architecture? Sure. So our freeze groups are the groups of symmetries that we can see with infinitely repeating freeze patterns. And freeze patterns are patterns that repeat infinitely along a line. And we do often see them in art and architecture all over the world. So I think that the name comes from uh, where we see them. Okay, I mean, that's certainly, you know, that certainly makes sense. Do you have any idea who first named them a freeze group? Because that's not the type of thing that mathematicians usually do. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, neither, <clears throat> neither do I. Usually, you know, usually you see things that the first person who investigated it, if his name was Smith, it's a Smith group. Uh, <laughs> but freeze group is much more attractive. Um, what is a translation, and how do translations preserve symmetry in freeze groups? Sure. So a symmetry, um, a translation is a type of symmetry that is a repetition or a shift. So we can see translations and infinitely repeating patterns, such as freeze and wallpaper patterns, because we can shift an entire pattern over by its unit of repetition, and each piece of the pattern lands on an identical piece. And so the entire pattern is left unchanged. And in this book, we see this in different ways and use coloring to manipulate the possible distances of translation. But in short, a, a translation is a, a repetition or a shift, or that's how we can see it. One of the things that I liked about your book is that you start getting some really intricate uh, pictures in when you start discussing freeze groups. And I must admit, when I first looked at the idea, I said, aha, it's a string of dots you know, uh, like dots on the unit line, on the uh, real line located at the integers. And although that's a freeze group, it's not really interesting because basically it's only, uh, it, it's only... You know, it's only it, translation. Yeah, that's all, just the translations. But uh, what are some of the other symmetries that freeze groups can display? Yeah, so it gets, it gets pretty fun. Um, so they can also have half turns as well as mirror reflections that are either horizontal or vertical, and glide reflections. And, of course, we can combine these symmetries, too. So in the book, we get to see all the different ways to combine these symmetries to form different symmetry groups, different freeze symmetry groups. But again, the groups are the symmetries, not the patterns. And we try to emphasize this by using different designs to represent the same freeze groups. And the fun part is then to see the symmetries within these patterns with different designs and find which ones are in the same symmetry group 
And then, of course, we use coloring to destroy some asymmetries while keeping others and to transform a pattern from representing one group into representing another one. Yeah, get on that website. But buy the book. <laughs> that, <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> um, uh, you, you mentioned glide reflection. Um, it's not exactly, it probably may not be clear to somebody who's listening what a glide reflection is. Is it possible to describe it in a simple way without having to get on the uh, website? Sure. Um, so the the most common place you might see glide reflections is imagine walking down a beach and you're leaving some footsteps in the sand and one foot is a mirror, your left foot leaves uh, a reflection of the right foot, but it's, it's shifted forward, right? Because you're walking forward. So a glide reflection, you can kind of see it as a combination between a translation and a mirror reflection um, because at the same time as reflecting across an axis, which might be like the axis of the bilateral symmetry of your body that's walking forward in the sand. Um, it's also a, a mirror reflection and, uh, you know, the, the translation as well. Um, yeah, that's a very good, you know, that's a very good example. And it's one that we can, you know, it's one that we can visualize without having to get on the website. Um, next thing, and this is probably the most complicated area of the book, is when you discuss wallpaper groups. Um, what precisely are wallpaper groups and what types of symmetry do they display? I'm so glad you asked because the whole book up to the section about wallpaper groups is intended uh, to build up the language to talk about these groups and use color to see and manipulate them. And of course, the wallpaper coloring challenges are the most fun and challenging puzzles in the book. So anyhow, the wallpaper groups are the symmetry groups for the wallpaper patterns. The freeze patterns, they repeat infinitely along one dimension, while the wallpaper patterns repeat infinitely along two dimensions. So imagine covering a piece of paper with a pattern or in an infinite plane with a pattern. And with more dimensions come more symmetries. And they have all the same symmetries as the free pattern, freeze patterns have, but in more directions. And there are more rotations possible. They have half turns, quarter turns, third turns, six turns, and mirror reflections and glide reflections and, of course, translations. And the fun is finding these symmetries in the patterns and then completing the coloring challenges that accompany many of the patterns. For example, a challenge would be using color to remove a pattern's mirror reflections while keeping its glide reflections. Or another one could be using color to transform a pattern that has both six turns and mirror reflections into one that has third turns. Um, and there are many more, and some of them do get pretty difficult, but there are also solutions online. Yeah, I was going to say at this stage, the um, at this stage, I think the coloring of some of these things is incredibly challenging. I was thinking, um, you know, there are these uh, some of these very intricate Oriental art that have these incredibly complex patterns in that the artists use very fine tip brushes in order to do it. And boy, I sure think you need things like that in order to, uh, uh, in order to, uh, do some of these because they're, um, I looked at them and thought I, I would hardly know where to begin. But one thing I could tell is that if you did them right, you really would get some beautiful patterns. Thank you. Uh, I hope, though, that they are also challenging. So it's not just like the challenge of coloring in the lines. It's, it doesn't matter if you don't color the lines. 
it's the challenge of completing the puzzle that goes along with them. So figuring out how you can transform a pattern that represents one wallpaper group into a pattern that represents a different wallpaper group. Yeah, but I would think that if you colored it, you would just see it a whole lot better. Yes, yes. Then, yeah, and I, and that is, of course, uh, well, one of the things that, um, one of the things that I'm just curious, because since we did bring up the website, I wonder whether or not the website allows you, uh, uh, has the feature where you present the coloring challenge and ask the question about the symmetries, then allow the person who's manipulating the website to do the coloring so they can make the guess about the uh, 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 about the puzzle involving the symmetries. Um, no, the coloring is only done on the paper version, and um, the interaction on the website is to click on the patterns and then see them animate to show the symmetries. Uh, okay, I mean that's you yeah. know that uh, that's a very reasonable thing to do. I mean, I, th- I think I'm. Uh, you know, I think what I suggested would require a lot in the way of programming, and you probably didn't want to go there. But um, it's nonetheless, you know, nonetheless, as I say, just even if you just look at the patterns in black and white, because uh, if you go and look at some of the Oriental artists who created patterns somewhat similar to this, some of them did just black and white, and they're beautiful just in black and white, but they'd be even better in color. At least that's, yeah. you know. Um, okay, uh, since we got to the wallpaper groups, there's an obvious guess here that if the number of dimensions increase, the types of symmetries do as well. Are there three-dimensional symmetries that cannot be found in two-dimensional structures? And could you bring those out in terms of colors as well? Oh, I haven't really thought about it in terms of colors, uh, but yes, there's a whole study of the symmetries um, of wallpaper groups that extends to what you call crystallography, and that's where people look at uh, uh, crystals or um, other three-dimensional objects, and uh, something to consider not just a three-dimensional, um, you know, three dimensions, it's also just different surfaces as well, so the wallpaper patterns are on a plane, um, but even if you just change that surface to, say, the surface of a sphere, um, you get different symmetries that are possible. Um, so take a look into the field of the study of um, crystallography if the two dimensions is not enough for you and not challenging enough for you in terms of the coloring challenges in the book. What, yeah, well, that's one of the things that, um, uh, that's one of the things that I find exceptionally interesting is that when you look at something abstractly, as mathematicians generally do, they're sometimes motivated by reality, sometimes just by abstraction for the sense of abstraction. But it's amazing how often this stuff shows up in the real world. And that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about mathematics. Stuff you do on paper has, uh, you know, resonates in the real world. And I hadn't thought about crystallography until you mentioned it. But of course, when you start to think about it, that's uh, um, I'm you're probably familiar with this, but one of the great discoveries of 20th century science was the discovery of uh, the structure of DNA, and that was aided by crystallographic studies. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's just absolutely amazing stuff. And also, when you mention the fact that 
these things are done on spheres. I, I remember uh, one of you know one of the disasters of my uh, academic career was a course in algebraic topology where they were doing stuff on, you know, where they were doing stuff not only on spheres, but on projective planes and on toruses. And I'm pretty sure that if you can, you know, that if you have these patterns on spheres, you could have them on toruses, which are donuts as well. Yeah. And that's all. <clears throat> and in fact, I think you've actually, I've actually seen things that are patterns on, 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 you know, on donuts, maybe not necessarily on donuts or, or, you know, or inner tubes, but that are colored on on things, and they're they really illustrate these group ideas. How all inclusive a concept group theory is. Yeah, and and then what is the symmetry um, gets a little bit more complicated. It's much simpler to consider the symmetries on a a two dimensional plane. Um, you know, but it's it's a different set of symmetries in the patterns when you're considering a torus. And it's actually where things like orbifold notation can help you out when you're starting to think about, like, the, the manifold of a surface. Um, but, yeah, to, to your point of, like, where, you know, some of these theoretical studies then have applications, um, did you know that a lot of chemists end up taking group theory uh, because they need to understand um, crystallography? No, I didn't, but I did know that a lot of physicists take it for different reasons. Yeah, yeah that... Um, uh, and that's one of the things that always that have as absolutely always appealed to me. But since we're discussing we're discussing group theory, when I took uh, I didn't take a course in group theory. I took a course what was called modern algebra out of uh, out of a book which had a chapter on group theory. But then I picked up a group a, a book entitled Permutation Groups, and. It uh, uh, a permutation, you know, it's a permutation mm-hmm. group is just, you know, shuffling around a number of objects. It has the same characteristics that symmetry groups have only nowhere near as beautiful. But there is always there was a uh, there was a theorem in the book that I remember is that if you take any group whatsoever, you can describe it abstractly and then represent it as a permutation group on some collection of objects. And I'm wondering whether or not the same thing. Uh, whether or not you know of whether or not there is any sort of uh, any sort of theorem to the effect that um, if you have an abstractly defined finite group, whether or not you can construct a geometrical object, maybe not in one, two, three, or dimensions, but which the symmetries of that geometrical object would describe the particular abstract group that you had. Maybe that's beyond. Uh, uh, I don't know whether or not that. But <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, when you're thinking about dimensions beyond uh, three dimensions, I think then you have to be a little clear as to what you mean about a geometrical object. Um, yeah, that's probably you know that's probably very true because. Uh, uh, but um, you know there are uh, for uh, scientists and mathematicians look at these things. I remember taking a course in physics where they talked about. Statistical mechanics uses six n dimensional space where n is the number of molecules you have, so that's on the order of like ten to the twenty fourth dimensions and of course we're never going to be able to consider a geometrical object in this, but you could describe things when you have things described by coordinates. you could talk mm-hmm. about symmetries yes, that's true yeah you true. could you could for instance, no matter how many dimensions you have. 
you could talk about you could talk about the ones which had say integer coordinates and you could disc- you could i'm not sure you could visualize these things but you could certainly discuss you know you could certainly discuss these symmetries um and um when you mentioned at the start of the uh at the start of this podcast that you'd gotten interested in mathematics and computer uh and computers when you were a child were you also interested in art because your book is in some sense as you said you wanted to bring art and mathematics and computers together um do you have a did you have any sort of background as an artist yeah i loved art as a kid um i considered going to art school instead of a liberal arts college or instead of i ended up uh you know looking at engineering applic- uh, uh, institutions as well. Um, but I, I certainly considered going um, on as an artist. Uh, and I loved art, and it's too bad that art isn't as big a part of my life anymore. Um, but also just to clarify, I found art and math as a kid, um, and I didn't really know that, you know, what I was doing was math when I was thinking about patterns and, you know, working with puzzles. But I really didn't know anything about computers. And to be honest, I'm still not the person to consult with uh, for your, your computer problems. Hardware, I don't really know much about it. Um, but through, um, you know, I, I, through my um, exposure as a kid, then I had confidence in math and pursued math in college uh, as a major. And it was through, um, you know, seeking more knowledge about math that I learned about computer science. I didn't know anything about computer science before. And that's how I was exposed to computer science. And that's what I feel so fortunate for, because we know, you know, that kind of paves your way into, um, you know, a, a fine job market. And, you know, you know, I won the lottery that what I liked thinking about and what I loved doing um, was also something that would pay me. Uh, so just to, to clarify, not it wasn't really your computer person or your computer kid. But you know something that's sort of interesting is when you discuss art, there's, uh, let, let's face it, it's not, uh, uh, it's hard to make a living as an artist or mm-hmm. someone who's, you know, someone who's interested in art. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is exceptionally important is ways to interest children in what we call STEM subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that one of the things that you can do is you can uh, uh, you can get the children started on some of the very because coloring you know coloring is an integral part of being a child. You learn how you know you learn how to color things, and I think that some of the simpler you know I've I've touched on this earlier that parents would do well to take a look at this book. And just take the earlier sections of the book and expose the children, expose their children, not just to the idea of randomly coloring things like apples and pears, but to coloring things, rotating them, getting the idea of symmetries so that they actually start thinking about coloring and patterns because mathematics and science are based on patterns. And I'm not, and and to some extent, art is. But if you can sort of take this interest in art and segue it into an interest in patterns, you're doing something that every math teacher is going to thank you for later on. Getting children to think that you know mathematics can be interesting. And um, 
I'm a math teacher, and uh, I think it's exceptionally important to find ways of doing this. And that's one of the things that immediately appealed to me about your book. And you started on the right road because you were, you know, you were interested in patterns. But mm-hmm. children are generally, you know, it's not clear to me whether or not children are. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And so if your book can be seen as a way to transition children to not just coloring random shapes, coloring horses, coloring shapes, all of which are useful, um, but coloring, uh, uh, but coloring uh, patterns and seeing the patterns that emerge from coloring, I think you've done a really great thing. And I'd hope that readers would, you know, I'd hope that people who click on the website would get the book simply because it's the book that enables you to do this, not the website. Thank you for uh, that stunning endorsement, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one of the reasons that I got into this is because I think that, you know, uh, I'm a book person. Um, I was born in a book era. And yes, I can do computer programming, but I still love books. If this were, you know, if if I were to do podcasts, I wouldn't do podcasts on software. You know, if somebody said, hey, Jim, do podcasts on software. Here's a piece of software. Pass. Books are where mm-hmm. I, you know, books are what I like. Alex, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And a couple of things. First of all, let's repeat that web, website. Oh, sure. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. The, the website is... So the, the name of the book is Beautiful Symmetry, and that's the website name as well. Beautiful Symmetry, one word, beautifulsymmetry.onl. It's like dot .online, but just dot .onl. And how can listeners, because one of the things that happens is that listeners often want to get in touch with, uh, with the people that they've heard because um, we're in a world where they can do it. How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I hope they do. Uh, reach out to me at... Uh, over email at contact at beautifulsymmetry.onl. If you also go to the website, there's a, a link in the info to contact. Um, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook with the at beautiful symmetry name. And if you end up coloring through the challenges and want to share them, please do send them my way, either through email or by posting them to Instagram or Facebook and tagging at beautiful symmetry. You know, I uh, I did an interview with an individual who had a, uh, a very complex book with a lot of puzzles in it. And at the end, if you solved all the puzzles, he had a Hall of Fame. Maybe what you can do with somebody who sends you a nice pattern, you can have, you know, you can have a, uh, you can post it on, on Facebook or something like that and attribute it to the, the people. So this yes, is the exactly. kind of artistic fame. Exactly. That's that's what exactly what I want people to do. You will get your moment of fame either on the website in the solution section or on Instagram or Facebook, whatever you like, as long as you do a good job and send it to me. Great minds think alike. Alex, yes. thank you. Thank you. Take it's care. great to be here. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.